Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Art News had a story this week about the acquisition of Sam Gilliam's 1968 canvas, Double Merge, jointly by the Dia Art Foundation and the Museum of Fine Arts, Houston. The reporter, Claire Selvin, noted that the earliest major joint purchase in recent times was Bill Viola's room-sized 2001 Five Angels for the Millennium, jointly acquired in 2002 by the Whitney, Tate, and the Centre Pompidou, and kindly credited me with initiating it. While I did wrangle a complex legal agreement bridging British and American common law and French civil law, it took Tate's Nick Sirota and the Pompidou's Alfred Paquemont to sign on to an unorthodox arrangement. Fast forward almost 20 years, and the competitive mindset of museum directors remains largely intact, despite welcome exceptions like this one. Owning carbon-based art remains a proof of value and virtue. But there are signs that a younger audience is gaining interest in non-carbon-based, fleeting, time-limited, screen-based, or immersive experience. Floor-to-ceiling projections of details of paintings by Van Gogh entice visitors looking for entertainment, as do mirror rooms. While small static oils may be judged to be necessary, but insufficient. In tandem with what may be a generational shift, the proportion of artists relying on ye olde media of canvas and metal versus projected, performative, or evanescent art experiences is unknown. So a question poses itself, are audiences and more and more artists drifting away from carbon to alternative platforms, including NFTs, leaving museums and the conventional art market behind? The pace of this change is dizzying, so it's a bit early to know. Let's turn now to a leading voice in philanthropy and more familiar ground. For Wallace, all of our initiatives are grounded in central guiding questions that if we have the potential to answer that question, how might it help organizations in the field at large? That was Bahia Ramos, Director of Arts at the Wallace Foundation. Since 2018, she has led the team responsible for the strategy and implementation of the Foundation's work in areas including building audiences for the arts and promoting arts education for young people. Before arriving at Wallace, Bahia served as Program Director of the Arts for the Knight Foundation, where she led the organization's strategy for a $35 million annual investment in arts funding across the country. In that role, she built national partnerships and initiatives with organizations such as Art Place and Sundance, and worked on the local level to bring more high-quality arts experiences to diverse audiences and neighborhoods. Previously at night, she had served as Director Community Foundations, managing a $140 million investment in community foundations in 26 cities, supporting local civic innovation and community vibrancy. She's guiding the Wallace Foundation's new $53 million initiative focused on arts organizations of color. A native of Brooklyn, Bahia lived in London for two years, consulting with the Mann Group PLC in its Corporate Responsibility Department. She's also worked as Director of Government and Community Affairs for both the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and the Brooklyn Children's Museum. She received her undergraduate degree in history from Williams College and a Master of Public Administration from Baruch College's Marx School of Public and International Affairs, where she was a member of the Pi Alpha Alpha Honor Society and a National Urban Fellow. Bahia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Max. Great to be here. You're not only a foundation executive, which we're going to get into, but you're an art collector. And you have said that buying art is a way of supporting artists as well as finding works that speak to you. Are you active as a collector today? 
Yes, though I seem to be running out of space for collecting right now, and I've tried to slow down. I mean, the thing with art is that when you love it, you always want it. And while I've probably slowed down since I've moved back to New York, it's been really important to me to support the work of artists and try to find other vehicles to support the making of art rather than just putting it on my wall. But I will confess that I did buy a couple of pieces this year during COVID to break my own rule. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it's a different impulse. So many people think about buying art as something purely for themselves. And mm. if they happen to meet the artist, fine. But that's not your philosophy, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, what it is important to be in conversation with artists and really learn about kind of how things were made, the impetus behind them, their meaning. But I really love for the work I have to be in conversation with itself. And I really seek to have like a personal relationship to what I own. I, I was saying over this weekend, I, I can't imagine giving up anything that I own. Although kind of moments of like, what will my legacy be? What what will happen to my art after I'm gone um, does occur. And I think about, you know, where art goes after after someone departs the world. You grew up in Brooklyn. I did. And what was your experience of the visual arts as you were growing up? I would say going to museums a lot with with my mother, with my grandmother. Um, I think it was important to kind of understand and like be part of the cultural life of the city while I was growing up. And and then also about like art, all the art making that just happened in the streets. My mom was very much the like, oh, there's someone on the street selling their art. Can we take a look at it and talk to them for a while? If I like it, maybe I want to like, you don't know, this person could be the next Basquiat Bahia. So there's a lot of like seeking and thinking about like how art lives out in the open and, and like, and that art doesn't always exist in a gallery or in a refined space. It could exist in like the public, the public domain, so to speak. Um, and that's really been a part of like how I live my life culturally. What what happens in these really wonderful and beautiful and kind of anch these anchor spaces that we talk about and support, but then also what happens in the the cultural life of a city and where do you see art? Do you see art on the like the side of a building? Do you see art being sold on the street? Do you see art happening as people are walking through the intersections of a busy street? And so it's really, really been like a part of how I live my life here and and absorb culture in New York. That's in New York. You had a decade in Miami. How do yeah. you think Brooklyn changed as a home for artists during that time? My collecting really exploded while living in Miami because you had just greater access to artists and um, and the gallery scene and being able to buy art. And it became, um, it demystified the, you know, you had to be a person of lot of means and many resources in order to be part of the art world, you could be a person with some amount of curiosity and interest. And you could find ways, especially in Miami at that time in 2010, to go to the fairs and negotiate and get art and meet artists, meet them in their studios and, and, um, and make that a practice. And I think it's that confidence that I came back with to New York and discovered that, you know, it's, it's still, it's still quite hard here, but it, I think the, what I'm delighted by is kind of like how galleries have become so much more of a public conversation for New York now. And I just see more interest from people who might not be of the art world going, like talking about going to galleries and seeing 
shows and learning about new artists because the art feels like it's reflective of the time, um, the time that we're going through. So, you know, while I feel like some barriers exist, I feel like the curiosity and, and the will, the willingness of people to just go out and experience these things and have, and, and take advantage of that access has increased over time. And the things you've been collecting of late, were they made during the pandemic? Um, one was made during the pandemic, it was a, just a limited edition print. And what's interesting, it's, you wouldn't know. I don't see it. I don't see that um, reflected in the work necessarily. And, um, but I'm curious to see what happens in, in like a year or so. Um, and what happens as we begin to emerge from this collective sense of grief that we're all experiencing. Yeah. Well, you, you've long been in leadership roles in foundations, which as a role spearheading investment in arts funding. And how has the pandemic affected the way you think about funding priorities? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for Wallace, there was a huge shift to be quickly responsive to the needs of our grantees, both our organizational grantees, and then thinking beyond about the kind of larger arts sector and community overall. So um, I was proud that we were able to contribute to emergency funding for uh, our most recent initiative group of grantees that we had been in relationship with for the last five years. And while our programmatic investment had ended, we were able to turn around monies to them to try to shore up some comfort during COVID. And then we also looked locally to, you know, being a, a part of New York and part of this infrastructure and ecosystem. And, and we put resources into the New York City COVID-19 relief fund. Um, but then we also from, you know, what I love about Wallace is like we're thinking about the research and and tools and practices that people are trying to kind of understand and make better during this time. So along with COVID relief and the Artist Relief Fund and money to our grantees, we also help develop um, webinars on how to understand the virus from an epidemiologist perspective, to preparedness strategies, to kind of um, scenario planning documents for the, for the art sector. And, and open up kind of like resources for people to convene and network beyond the work that they were already doing to make sure that these peer-to-peer connections and opportunities for art, art administrators were there during a time of like deep isolation and that people could understand that they weren't navigating through this by themselves, but there was a whole community of folks going through the same thing and seeking kind of connection and resources and understanding. And I think that that really cemented uh, for me kind of the ways in which philanthropy can galvanize and move itself quickly to respond to the needs of a community in, in, you know, in a very short time. And I gather that the new five-year, $53 million investment Wallace is making is part of a commitment to learning and making long-term relationships with grantees. What are the kinds of outcomes you're hoping for from this investment? Yeah, so we're always thinking about how our efforts build uh, equitable improvements in the arts, understanding that the arts belong to everyone. And what we learned most recently is that leaders of arts organizations of color have 
steadily been saying that their contributions are often overlooked and underfunded. And for Wallace, all of our initiatives are grounded in central guiding questions that if we have the potential to answer that question, how might it help organizations in the field at large? And this question of what community means and and how it is leveraged, how that connection to community is leveraged by arts organizations of color to increase their resilience uh, while sustaining their relevance was one that became very clear during this time when um, when everyone is shut down and everyone, all organizations are thinking about what they mean to the people where they are and, and who are those people and what are their needs and what is what is the you know, what is the responsibility of the organization to meet those needs? And so this initiative especially um, will have a strong research focus that examines this relationship between the relationship to community and relevance and resilience. And we'll be supporting um, organizations, arts organizations of color to document their efforts and insights around that work and also the aspirational work of what it means to be embedded in community and have that be a part of your DNA and hope that those learnings and insights will help support other arts organizations of color and the broader field. And I think what we what we really wanna build is recognition and understanding of the distinctive, distinctive contributions that arts organizations of color bring to our landscape and to the field at large, um, and we and we we hope that our efforts will build the um, the kind of evidence base, the knowledge landscape um, around around arts organizations of color mm-hmm. and their practices. One of the issues, of course, is sustainability and the fact that nonprofits have exploded over the last many years to the point where many aren't really sustainable. They had an idea at the beginning and they went forward. And you've divided the grants, I believe, into two pots for larger and for smaller organizations. Mm -hmm. Is there a time at which you evaluate organizations that are meretricious but maybe aren't going to survive? And then what happens? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there will be two cohorts. There is this smaller cohort. We are designed because of the deep research focus in our work to work with a a smaller number of larger organizations at a time, but we knew it was imperative to find a way to work with smaller organizations almost concurrently because that is who the majority of the field um, is. And so I think we're going to look at this question and co-create the program with our grantees and work together on understanding like which elements they want to probe and examine further. But we will also have, after a year of planning around these questions, um, a way to opt out for an organization to say, you know what, I thought I wanted to do this. This is not what I want to do. Can I please, you know, I think my 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 time here has finished, um, or this is taking an approach that um, that I I I don't want to take, and and I think I think having that kind of flexibility is is key. I think that the studies and reports that we produce from this will try to spark new thinking, and I think it comes with the full understanding that not everybody will survive, and I think that's a risk that all of us are taking right now in investing in new spaces and and bringing on um, new challenges because that is the reality 
with which, you know, in which we, we all exist. Um, and there are no guarantees anymore. And so I think to the best way that we can help the field evolve and bring new practices up that help answer questions that, you know, folks might, might not have the resources to really tackle on their own. I think we're just better positioned uh, for that. When nonprofits start, there's always an assumption they will be a forever right. entity. And companies don't look at the world that way. They no. recognize that unless they're demonstrating value, they're not necessarily going to make it. Restaurants, for example, yeah. we see, yeah. certainly in New York, open and close with yes. regularity. But yeah. in the nonprofit world, it's almost a religious fervor that people feel, I've got to keep this thing moving. And I think the question for foundations and others is, would it be better to have things merged or would it be better to have talent pools consider different routes? When you evaluate, do you look at that as a learned lesson that perhaps we need to be taking into consideration? Yeah, I think so. But I think for us, I think the research doesn't look at it from, uh, you know, were you successful at doing this or not? If not, you know, to like, oh, then we all failed. I think we really look at things from a continuous Im- improvement and continuous learning perspective. And and if these things don't succeed, there is learning in that too. And how does that help inform others who are trying to do the same? And so um, for us, it's really important. And I think it's a little different relative to other foundations that this emphasis on like continuous learning and improvement are all part of the learning journey. And we're not in this space to evaluate whether someone said they were going to do X and they did exactly X at the end means that it was a success. I think the success is in the journey of saying you're going to do X and getting to whatever outcome (laughs) that might look like X or might not look like X in the end um, has done. Um, And and that's, I think that's where we, we stand on things. It's been an evolution by you because mm-hmm. foundations, including Wallace, seem to be loosening mm-hmm. expectations around mm-hmm. key performance indicators and other business school-like metrics, which was very common starting in the 90s when making grants. And we at Souls Grown Deep recently had generous grants from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and Mackenzie Scott, and they were explicit. We don't want you to give us <laughs> reports. You're the experts roll ahead. What do you attribute that change to and how does it work at Wallace? Well, I think for us, it comes from a place of humility, right? We don't know what we don't know and we really learn from the field. Um, And in order to really learn from the field, you have to enter with humility and trust and and say like, okay, I'm, I'm looking to you field to inform this question and help move this learning along. Um, and so that that's one thing. I think uh, another is that the context is com- it's constantly shifting, especially in a sector like the arts. And you can't always hold someone to something that, you know, they say, oh, yeah, this is going mean, to look at COVID. It's like, yeah, we're going to up our audience by 75 percent next year. And then all of a sudden, you know, a pandemic hits and you're trying to st- stick to that metric in order to to meet a goal and the ground has opened up underneath you and I, I just think it's unfair to 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 put someone in that position and apply that kind of pressure to someone I think understanding like I said like what is the learning in here and how can we learn from these these incidents these 
these mishaps, these these paths that go in a different direction, um, and really documented in a way that's honest and is practical for the field does a greater service than saying, well, we wanted all these folks to get 75% and they didn't. And so there you go, you know, story over. Mm. There's been a backlash, I guess, of late by particularly people in museum staff about the nature of philanthropy, the nature of philanthropic giving, and the fact that a lot of sources coming to support the arts are drawn from people who earned their wealth or their ancestors or parents earned their wealth in ways that aren't commensurate with today's values. What are the ways in which you guard against a concern that people have that money coming from foundations is, is by definition impure? <laughs> Right. I mean, I think, you know, this in perpetuity and where did the money come from and how was that wealth earned are all valid things and questions. I think we think about our own um, processes and um, and and I think we I think philanthropy as a whole has begun to interrogate, you know, the, our respective processes to 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 question whether we're perpetuating some of the same inequalities that we may have, you know, others in our place may have built long ago um, and really trying to undo some of the harm. And I think um, what we know is like building trust is at the center of our work. And with that trust comes like deep listening and and an ability to respond and an ability to be, humble with with your acts of service and and how we are kind of humble and effective stewards within this space and so um, I think everything is kind of up for grabs in terms of the kinds of conversations and I think foundations even during during this period we've come together more more openly more honestly to say what are the ways in which um, we can help work together in these spaces where there might be mutual interest and not complicate things for organizations any longer, but um, understand and build transparency, more transparency into our systems so that um, that the invitation is clear and our intentions are clear and they are more in keeping with who we are supposed to be in the society versus like the kind of black box scenario in which everything seems dark and nobody even knows how to approach us. And that was a big move in doing an open call for this initiative of going, moving from an invitation only process to having an open call and saying, well, we don't actually know what the landscape looks like. And there might be a lot of unusual suspects out there that we'd love to um, connect with and learn about. And it, it did wonders for us. Yeah. It's been for me a, a wonderful learning curve around impact investing. Because although our resources at the Souls Grown Deep Foundation are very modest, our board agreed that it was time to just start with a, a fresh sheet of paper and say, mm-hmm. every investment we make has to be commensurate with our values. We have yes, to stop yes, just yes. using index funds. We have to move towards that. Is that in the foundation community? I know some foundations have explicitly embraced that. Is that broadly among your peers yes. a topic? Values, yes. Values aligning with the work, absolutely. And it's something, it's something that the board holds us accountable to. And it's something I think people working for foundations today really, really want to have. Like we want to know, <laughs> is this work aligned with even my personal values and with the, the values we espouse to have as a foundation? Um, and I think that we give a lot of attention and care 
to making sure that our work is is reflective of the values and that we live out our values in how we present ourselves and interact with the field. I mean, for me, it goes to the core of even where the funds that you have are invested. And mm-hmm. we've been working with NACP. We've been working with mm-hmm. a variety of ways of using funds and capital that mm-hmm. are mission-related. And mm-hmm. I guess that's, for me, what's fascinating about the shifting ground under us as, as accountability and transparency are now really not just watchwords, but they're being lived by people. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about governmental and corporate arts support in the sense that it's been waning over the last many years and putting more pressure on funders like you. But it's also prompted arts organizations to try to emulate for-profit ventures. And I'm wondering if you agree with me that that's a risky path that can end up devaluing a commitment to art as a practice separate from a commercial context. Yeah, it can. But I'm seeing now that new arts leaders don't really want the traditional nonprofit art structure to govern the way they create and present and make. And so they're kind of opting out and building collectives and building new business models around the practice of art. Um, And so I think this period obviously has given a lot of space for reinvention and and pivoting. And, um, and, you know, it could be very risky, but at the same time, the the cover of you know, fiscal sponsorship seems to provide some, stability to folks. And, and I'm noticing that foundations are starting to say, well, hey, how do I work with these new structures? What are the ways in which I can, you know, I can work with fiscally sponsored organizations, and I don't need to be, you know, strict about having 501c3 status, because so these are, I'm sorry to interrupt, these are like big corporations you're speaking of, or how are you? Oh, of, of private, I would say of private foundations working with like artist collectives or things yeah. and things that don't fit that traditional structure. Right. Um, foundations are trying to kind of learn about what those new structures are and saying, well, how can I invest in a way that, you know, I'm, that works for me kind of compliance wise, but also works for, you know, allows my resources to be connected to these projects. And, and we're kind of shifting and changing along with them and trying to see where the spaces in which people are taking risk. Fascinating because across the pond in Europe, of course, a lot of mm-hmm. cultural organizations and collectives are looking at the United States saying we should be more privatized and we should oh, be more. <laughs> and I don't know that they've got a really good solution because they yeah. still have strong ministerial support. Yeah, from, strong subsidy from government. Like with Mexico and so many other countries around the yeah. world where it's assumed that culture is a national priority. We don't have that here and certainly right. not in arts education. Yeah, how would you say arts education is as a priority in the Biden administration? What have you seen as the early signs? Early signs. Um, <laughs> I would say early signs are positive in that there are conversations around how the arts fits into like the the whole child's kind of learning agenda. Um, I, just as a, an aside about government, it was really public funding that saved a lot of arts organizations through the pandemic or in the pandemic as we are right now. And I think that surprised a lot of folks um, that these, like the Save Our Venues and the PPP loans, um, 
really came through at a moment when people needed government to step up. Um, and, I, and I do think that we are trying to understand how arts fits into the fabric of our society, arts and culture beyond, you know, saying, oh, this, the museum is here and we, here's our economic impact study. We made 10 jobs and bought $50,000 in supplies, but really thinking about what is, who is, and what is the role of an artist as a, as a, as a, an employee, as a, as a working person in America, um, what are, you know, what is the, the efficiency around arts organizations? Um, Cause despite what we say, like arts organizations take their money, they present something, it goes to the public, it has value and they can turn that around pretty quickly. And so I think we're trying to think about that conversation about um, government and governmental investment in culture more deeply, but I don't think the answer has been, has been created yet. And of course there's also the red state, blue state issue of yes. where you put your money and to the, de- the degree to which those organizations in a way are, are discounted yes. in, a, in a state that doesn't look at the arts the way other states do. Is there a plan ahead past this remarkable $53 million investment for what comes next that you could share with us? Or are you still figuring that out? I think we're still figuring that out. (laughs) You know, we invest in spaces for five years at a time and we haven't, we recently had our open call. We got um, 252 responses to that and um, we haven't even launched the first cohort um, and the second I think will come in the next couple of years. Um, and so right now we're focused on um, who the selection of the grantees for the first cohort of the work. And maybe if you ask me again in about three years, I might have a more <laughs> solid answer. But, I love um, the time horizon of foundations. Yes. Yeah. so different from the know, rest of well, us work. I, you know what I love? <laughs> the thing that I think I really appreciate is that we are we as Wallace are in this space for the next five years. That is like, that is it, right? And it's not it's not a flash in the pan for us. This is a deep commitment. This is the long term. This is how we are going to develop relationships and trust in this space. And I'm really excited about the possibility of learning about all the organizations that come through this initiative or not, um, and 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 being able to contribute to that conversation over the long term. Um, So for now, that's where my head is. Well, it'll be great to watch the impact. And as you say, you're going to share the findings that you make in respect to the impact of these grants. Yes, absolutely. I think that's part and parcel of our work is, and and I think it will be in a, at a speed at which the field moves. So we have learned to, to really surface learnings early get folks involved in the the process of learning alongside us and try to document as much as we can going through the thing as well as like once it's done so that um, we don't disappear and then reappear in six years with findings so i i'm you know i'm hoping to be in constant conversation with the field as we as we um begin this work bahia thank you for making time to be on art scoping i really appreciate it Yeah, I appreciated my time with you. It was a great conversation, Max. We've been speaking today with Bahia Ramos, Director of Arts at the Wallace Foundation. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.